This is David Duchovny, and you're listening to Booked. I like the way I said Booked. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Um, this episode will not be a book review. We actually have an interview. We mentioned it on previous episodes. We're going to be talking in just a matter of minutes with Richard Chismar. And here is his bio before we get into the conversation. Richard Chismar is the co-author with Stephen King of the New York Times bestselling novella, Gwendy's Button Box. Recent books include The Girl on the Porch, The Long Way Home, his fourth short story collection, and Widow's Point, a chilling tale about a haunted lighthouse, written with his son Billy Chismar, which was recently made into a feature film. His short fiction has appeared in dozens of publications, including Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine and the year's 25 Finest Crime and Mystery Stories. He has won two World Fantasy Awards, four International Horror Guild Awards, and the HWA's Board of Trustees Award. Chismar's work has been translated into more than 15 languages throughout the world, and he has appeared at numerous conferences as a writing instructor, guest speaker, panelist, and guest of honor. All right, and we're just going to jump right into it, so without further ado... Here is our conversation with Richard Chismar. Richard, thanks for taking time to come on and talk to us at, at Booked. I'll, I'll be honest, this is uh, a, not so much, and I know I hate to say it this way, not so much because of the Gwendy books, but because of Cemetery Dance. This is something I personally wanted to do for a while, so I'm glad that we're finally getting a chance to do this. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for asking me. Okay, so typically when we uh, do an interview... Uh, where we've reviewed a book of the author beforehand, we give them an opportunity to kind of explain their books in their own words, as opposed to just relying on our interpretation of it. So um, we did talk about Gwendy's Button Box and Gwendy's Magic Feather um, in the review that we did. So do you want to just give us a summary or your idea of of what the, the Gwendy series is? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll start. I'll give you a little bit of background um, first, because most, uh, you know, that's kind of where most people like to start is, is how in the hell did, uh, you know, did it come about in the first place? Um, you know, Gwendy's Button Box, I believe, was originally planned to be a short story by Stephen King. And uh, you wrote the first 20, 25 pages, and then he put it aside because he couldn't figure out where it went next. And in his words, I think he he said he felt like it was just about to get really complicated and he, and he kind of didn't know what direction to take it in. Um, so that's kind of where I came on board and, and, uh, you know, it, it turned, if it, you know, transformed from a short story into a, you know, a full length novella. And, uh, essentially in the first book, Wendy Peterson is a 12 year old girl living in Castle Rock, Maine. And, uh, she's just getting ready to go to junior high and she's experiencing a lot of the, the normal, adolescent growing pains you know she has acne she she wishes she didn't have to wear glasses she's uh, she needs to lose some weight in her mind because there's been some teasing you know back in in elementary school and uh, so she's been running you know going out and jogging every morning all summer long and she runs up to castle park and she runs up these steps which have been nicknamed the suicide stairs and um it's it's up at the park where she meets this this stranger dressed all in black um, who introduces himself as Richard Ferris. And he gifts her with this uh, this mysterious button box, which is, you know, I, I won't go into too much detail, but it's just this box with these multicolored buttons on it. Um, we come to find out that each colored button represents a, a different landmass in the world. Um, and there's two levers, one on each side, one which, uh, and he demonstrates this for her, um, you know, one which dispenses these very valuable silver coins, uh, you know, in mint condition. And the other one dispenses these tiny little chocolates, which which he says, uh, uh, you know, he pretty much says that they're these magic little chocolates. Um, and uh, and he leaves this box with her. And essentially the first book is about how she, you know, it's it's a coming of age story. And she's she's experiencing all the normal growing pains of a, of a teenager as she goes through high school and then enters college and she's left with this box with this tremendous responsibility and um through different events both locally and globally she's she's tempted to push some of the buttons and uh i, I you know i won't go into too much detail about whether she eventually does or not but um yeah i, I think it was steve's kind of take on uh you know matheson's button button and and he talks about in the second book when he wrote when he wrote the forward he talks about another story that he kind of uh 
that kind of inspired this one. Um, and of course now I'm forgetting what it was called. Um, I think it was called the weapon, maybe something like that, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it, it, on a surface, it's this sweet little story about this, you know, coming of age of this young girl in castle rock. Um, but it kind of has a lot of layers on, you know, underneath there. I've been um, dying to know this since I cracked open Gwendy's button box, I don't know, three, four weeks ago now. And, and I'm sure this right. has come up before. So I'm just going to flat out ask, is Richard Ferris Randall Flagg? <laughs> well, my answer will be, uh, and I laughed ahead of time, so that kind of gives you a tip off. But um, I, I won't answer for Steve, but I do know that Steve was asked that question um, at some point, And I don't remember where, whether it was a... Uh, a verbal interview that we were both doing uh, or whether I read it, it was in print, one of those joint print ones, but uh, he essentially just said RF, you know, it, it, there's meaning to those, there's meaning to those initials. Um, so I believe that was his way of saying, yeah, you're, you know, you're kind of seeing a gentler side or a different side, or maybe even a deceptively gentle side of uh, Randall flag. Um, the, the cool thing is that there will be a third volume. There will be a, you know, Gwendy is now going to be a trilogy. Um, so, and, and people ask me all the time now, what's the title? When's it coming out? What's it about? And I, I, I'm over three because I don't know the title. I have no idea when it's coming out because it's not written yet. <laughs> and I don't know what it's about, but, uh, you know, in the first Gwendy, we take her from age 12 up to graduating college. And the second Wendy takes place over the space of, of a few weeks um, when she's in her middle to late thirties. So it, it's only natural. We come back and we see her, you know, later on in life. And uh, to my mind, and again, this is, I don't know whether I'll be writing this one solo or whether Steve and I will be doing it together. Hopefully we'll collaborate again on that one um, depending on a schedule. But to my mind, that third volume should answer some of those questions. And I, and I feel like uh, Richard Ferris should should probably take on a bigger role and, and maybe some of those questions be answered. So that's my hope. If I, uh, you know, whether, like I said, whether I'm going solo or with Steve, I might have to talk him into that. But I have a feeling he'll, he would have a, a lot of fun with that, too. That's um, that's very exciting to hear. So I like that answer a whole lot. Um, I'm going to ask yeah. one more that, again, is one of those kind of spoilery questions. I would preface this. This comes up on the podcast occasionally is the the question of does the, the creator, does the author, the creator of this world have an answer to something we don't have an answer to? So I'm just going to kind of ask, I, I guess I want to know, do you know who had the box in between um, the two times that Gwendy sees it? No, you know, I, I mean, I, I, no. And, and I honestly don't know if anyone else did. Um, he, he references the fact that someone did that's that, it, that he has someone in mind at the end of the first book. So I'm assuming, but you know, that was Steve's line in the first book. So I, uh, again, I, I think that's something that we'll probably delve into in the third book. Um, you know, where else has it been? And, and, but one of the things I liked about the, the conclusion of the, of Magic Feather, the second book was, I, one of the moments I really liked was, was when they're sitting on the bench in front of the airport and, um, you know, Gwendy is kind of aghast because she realizes that, uh, you know, Richard Ferris is not the all knowing, all controlling being that, that she envisioned. And uh, she gets she actually gets angry for a, for a moment there. And she says, you know, I thought you had all the answers. You, you know, I, I, you're just a glorified, you know, delivery man or whatever. And uh, mm -hmm. I kind of like that because it kind of it kind of opens us. It opens the story up to a lot. He can kind of come back in book three and correct her on that. But I have a feeling that that he won't. And uh, we'll find out more of the story and, and, and maybe a little bit more about the, you know, overall Stephen King universe and, and where you know, RF stands in that, but, uh, but yeah, I don't, you know, no, when I wrote this book, I didn't, I didn't really put that. I didn't really. And, and I had a lot of different kind of storylines that could have been, you know, weave woven into the story that, you know, magic feather became, um, that, you know, never happened, but that wasn't one of them. I, I never really, uh, you know, explored where the box had been. It was just, it was intriguing to me that he said I needed someplace safe to stow it away for a while. And you were the safest place I could think of. Um, that, that was really awesome. Like yeah. sometimes the stuff that happens, I don't even know how to say it, like off screen, 
is every bit as interesting as the stuff that happens in the actual story. And I thought that was done really well. Yeah. And it was one of those little, you know, I'd like to say it was, it was, you know, intended, uh, you know, uh, intelligence on my part, but it was just one of those things that kind of, it felt right when, when, uh, a lot of that second book was like, well, actually both books for me, um, you know, we're like that. I have no idea. We're certain, you know, in the first book, people asked me, you know, who wrote the coin, the the coin show scene with the with the elderly man who who uh, was buying, you know, the silver coins from Gwendy. And I'm like, actually, that was me. And then Steve came in and made it better. Um, and I still remember the day that Steve read that when I sent it over to him and, and he, I saved the text. I screenshot it, of course, because he went on and on about how much he loved that scene and how much he loved the character. And, and, and like I said, don't get me wrong. He went he went in right after me and made it made it better. But um, that's one of those things where I look back and I'm, I think I have no idea where that came from. The whole idea of the coin show and that guy and him coming out in the parking lot and saving her from the guys on the bikes and and all that. So, um but yeah, that that happened a lot in Magic Feather, and uh, particularly with the with the Richard Ferris stuff. It just that whole kind of conversation and and uh, you know the reasoning behind it kind of just came out. And um, I remember after the fact being kind of nervous because you talk about you know Castle Rock itself is sacred territory, so I feel like I'm kind of treading in that territory already. But then when you start talking about you know RF, yeah you know, uh, especially mm-hmm. so. And, uh, so I was particularly, you know, anxious when it came time for Steve to read that. But, uh, in, in his edit, he had very few notes. I, I remember the first note was in capital letters and he said, aha, there he is. And I just thought, well, <laughs> if the, if the normal everyday reader has that same reaction, then I'm good. There. So like of all the things that you guys just talked about, um, the, the, the fact that, uh, Richard Ferris shows up, uh, I would say sparingly in in Magic Feather, not to spoil mm-hmm. anything. I love the idea of like the power of an absent character or the power of an absent whatever in a story because like sometimes, like Livia said earlier, it's nice to like it almost entices you, it teases you, it tantal, uh, uh, you know, t- it makes you feel like what's going on over there. So there is something I think that's that's good about not too much of something. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And that's why, you know, what I said about the third book could just be interesting because, uh, uh, you know, wherever it fits. And and I say all this and watch the third book will come out and he won't even make an appearance. But that's not it's just not, you know, my initial thoughts are that, no, you know what? There's a lot of little puzzle pieces that have been shuffled around in here, um, particularly for long time, you know, Stephen King readers. So the opportunity, I guess that's the key word here, the opportunity to kind of really play with Richard Ferris slash, you know, whoever he is, <laughs> um, it, you know, within the confines of this little story, but how they connect to everything else is it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's almost like it's too much to resist. So yeah, it's like, you don't want to show, even though he's, he's not a monster, certainly uh, through two volumes, I was going to say, you don't want to show the monster too much like in jaws, but <laughs> The temptation will be great in the third book to uh, to get a few answers, but but you're right. I mean, I do like I, I think less is more, and I definitely you know when it was time when we sold the paperback and the ebook rights to Simon and Schuster, and they wanted to squeeze in one final very quick edit, and even though they knew Steve edited it, so I knew they weren't going to change anything <laughs> substantial. But that was kind of the one thing going in. I said, look, I said I, I feel like less is more with this guy. Um, at this point of the story, I said that that could very well change in, in the in the next volume. But um, yeah, I like the fact that you know it's not it's it's kind of like not a cop out mysterious. You know, me saying you know I needed a safe place to to tuck this or stow this away, and you were the safest place. I think that could be a cop out. It, it would actually be a pretty good one to kind of cover a lot of ground with <laughs> with few words and explanation. But it wasn't. It was just it that was that was the only thing he could have said in my mind as to why it unexpectedly made a return trip to Gwendy and now you know in this time period and why you know she was uh, she was special in the first place and and uh, you know he was kind of demonstrating that by uh, by hiding it with her again but you know to me I'm thinking you know what the hell did you need a safe place to tuck it away for what were you afraid of and I want to find that out yep we all do <laughs> yeah 
So, and I have no idea either. I mean, I've, I've said that a few times to people about the third volume. I'm like, well, hell, I'm, I'm just as anxious to find out what happens next as you are. And, um, you know, I guess the day, you know, we get to go ahead to sit down and do it is, is when those answers will start coming, or at least I hope they do. I, I, to be honest, I've never done a series type thing. I've had a bunch of stories with recurring characters at times, but, um, it's so not the same thing. So yeah, I, I think I, there'll be a different type of nervousness when I, when it's time to sit down for the third book that I haven't had, you know, up until now, because those stories came out so organically and so quickly, you know, the first book, you know, Steve and I finished it in the space of a month. And that was with, you know, some blank days in there because he was, you know, working on a rewrite and, uh, I was working on other things and, um, you know, it came very quickly. And the second book, which was almost twice the length I did in the first draft was in like a month. So I'm praying that the third book is, comes out in a similar fashion. But now of course I start feeling all this pressure because I'm like, I literally know nothing of what happens next. All I know is, you know, what's mentioned in the first book. And that's when it's time, when it's Gwendy's time to go, she'll, she'll go laying in a bed surrounded by her loved ones, looking out the window and seeing birds take flight. And it's a beautiful moment and, and there's mm-hmm. peace there. And that, that's how she'll leave this earth. So we got some dots to connect in between. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Cause I didn't think about that until you just said it. Um, so just to kind of vaguely fill people in, on that that that's a prediction that's made um that that that's something that's coming in her future that she goes yeah and that we first, actually yeah sorry yeah go ahead that's okay that it's interesting that we actually have what potentially is the you know last passage in a book three and it didn't occur to me until you just said that that it's kind of interesting that we know potentially what the end of the third story is yeah, I mean that that's and you know what and that's what I said to Steve because the way the the way the trilogy came about um and I say trilogy and and that's well let me let me start at the beginning. The way it came about was it was either Apple or Amazon um contacted Simon and Schuster and they said, "Look, since Gwendy's Magic Feather is a sequel, technically it's it's book 2. Um will there be further books? Can we designate this as a series?" Um, for marketing purposes, because they they felt very strongly that that would help in the marketing of the book. So Simon and Schuster wrote me an email and said, hey, you know, actually, they forwarded me their email and they just said, what do you think? And I said, well, let me let me talk to Steve. So it it's probably my boldest moment with Steve, because, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Steve's the man. I'm just I'm happy to be along for the ride here, even though he would tell you differently. And he 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 has said publicly, you know, Gwendy is as much riches as, as mine and blah, 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 and probably more um, because I never would have finished the damn thing. Um, you know, I, I, it's like I tell him I'm not buying that, dude. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I asked him and I but like I said, in probably my boldest move, I said, Steve, I said, look, the first book, we take her up through college, second book late thirties, I said, we know what her final moments on earth are like. I said, we got to connect the dots there. And, uh, yeah, I said, so I think we should. And he wrote back and and said, yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of how that came about. Um, one of those kind of happy little, you know, accidents that is thrust upon you. Um, and I joked with Steve anyway, and I said, well, it doesn't have to be a trilogy. I said, you know, if the next story we write is, is really good and she's only 60, I said, we don't have to kill her yet. So, <laughs> so who knows? I mean, we could very well, there could, you know, there could very well be, a, you know, four or five volumes, but I'm guessing it'll be, it'll be a trilogy. I'm glad you shared that because somewhere I, I felt like I, I read you saying that you weren't sure when it was coming out or when it was going to be about. And, you know, one of the questions we kind of had was, well, then how the hell did you guys come up with a trilogy? <laughs> like, you know, if there's no yeah. road to the end, how did you come up with that? So that's good to know. You covered a little bit of this, but we kind of want to more specifically dig in. Uh, Castle Rock, as you mentioned, is, you know, sacred ground for for King fans. Um, how, like, what are the challenges of working in somebody else's really, really established world. Because, you know, you, you go out on a limb. This isn't like, you know, we, we've talked to people who have written, you know, like video game tie-in stories and stuff. But, you know, this is Castle Rock. There have to be right. some challenges playing it on that playground. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is uh, is with the first book, you know, um, 
the way it, the, the way the first book came about, and and, uh, and I'll, I'll circle right back to your to your question. But the way this first book came about is Steve and I were just emailing about. I had actually brought up the subject of round robin novels or round robin like stories where you have multiple authors involved. And then we started talking about collaborations. And then he mentioned that he had a story. You know, he didn't mention it by title. He just mentioned that he had started a story a while back that he was never able to finish. And and I said, hey, well, I'd love to read it if you feel like sending it my way. And I was asking from the viewpoint of, you know, being friends with Steve, I'm fortunate that from time to time he'll send me a new short story to read just for fun or if, uh, you know, if, if he's in a good mood, sometimes I even get the new book early, you know, to read in manuscript. Um, so that's all I was kind of doing. And, and, but the next morning an email showed up, uh, Gwendy's button box was attached to it. And one sentence, they said, do, do with it, do with it, what you do, whatever you want with it or something like that. So I wrote him back and I said, you, you want me to finish it? He said, if you feel like you can, you know, read it and see what you think. So I read the story, very first line it mentions Castle Rock. So, you know, I'm already sweating. I read, I read the 20, 25 page section and, and just fell in love with the character, fell in love with the story, had no idea what I was going to do with it. Immediately emailed him back and said, you know, yeah, I'll, I'd like, I'd like to take a crack at this. If you don't like it, we'll, we'll trash it. No biggie. Um, so the next like three days I poured out 10, 12,000 words and uh, sent it to him right away. And then we, like I said, we probably spent another three and a half weeks playing ping pong with the manuscript back and forth. Um, to circle back to the Castle Rock question is I immediately – questions started popping up because, I, you know, you want to be – you know the constant readers. They know everything. So if you get something wrong, you're going to hear about it, and you're going to hear about it really loudly and, and really often. <laughs> so I, I immediately texted Bev Vincent, who, who's a really good writer and a Stephen King universe historian. If there is such a thing, he's it. Um, and I started texting him, you know, various questions and – because Bev is a very cool guy and very polite and very, very unlike me, uh, who would have been asking all kinds of questions back. He just answered my questions and waited for me to tell him why I was asking. But uh, he, he kind of covered my butt when it came to the Castle Rock, you know, um, because you can't just throw a Texaco station on the corner of whatever and whatever street and make it up like like I would <laughs> for another story. You got to get this stuff right. And, you know, for the second book, particularly where I was dealing with law enforcement and uh, and, you know, a lot of the geography and, and not to mention the fact that in the second book, you know, it's set in 1999. Well, you know, Castle Rock was supposed to pretty much be gone, I think, after 91 or 92 and uh, Needful Things. Um mm-hmm. So again, yeah, it, it was a huge, and the funny thing is, is I, I started texting Bev questions again, and uh, he, Bev Vincent wrote the introduction for a, a British limited edition of Gwendy's Magic Feather, and in that he says, well, once I started getting those texts again, I knew Gwendy was back, and I just had to wait for Rich to tell me. Um, yeah. So yeah, to answer your question, that's a long rambling way, but uh yeah, I mean, it's a huge responsibility, both just from a strictly editorial standpoint, you want to get these things right. But also, uh, again, the fact that uh, I, I was, you know, I guess technically the first person to, you know, to be handed the keys to to such a place in, in Steve's world um, to go solo, you know, um, and I didn't know that, you know, um, <laughs> when I an interesting backstory to magic feather is I woke up one morning really early, much earlier than usual with, with the idea that, that Gwendy Peterson had grown up to become a Congresswoman newly elected and the button box showed up again. That's all that, you know, I woke up with that thought in my mind and I remember I grabbed my phone and I tapped out a, a little email to Steve and I said, well, wh- what would you think if Gwendy was this newly elected Congresswoman and she shows up in her office one day and there's the button box waiting for her? That's all I said. I wasn't pitching him for a sequel. You know, there, there had never been discussions of a sequel. Um, I know a reporter or two had asked this and we both kind of just shrugged it off. I, I would have felt, you know, I would have felt like, you know, I was, I was asking to win the lottery twice if I ever even approached the idea of a sequel. And I knew, you know, I know how busy Steve is, so I know it's not something he was jazzed about. Um, so I sent that email and he wrote me back within an hour and he just said, this is a great idea. It's a really great idea. Um, I'm going to be busy for the foreseeable future with Holly Gibney, uh, but I think you should write it. So 
and all my wisdom, I took that as, Hey, Rich, you write the first draft and I'll come on board later and I'll make you look really good. Um, because I never, I never in a million years, number one would have thought that he was handing me the keys to castle rock to, to write this story. And, and number two, I probably wouldn't have had the, 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 you know, the balls to do it because I mean, I'm crazy, but you know, I, I don't know, but just the idea that I was going to go in there and write a, a short novel where 80% of it took place in Castle Rock with characters from Stephen King's universe. And it's going to reference the fact, you know, reference all these incidents from Cujo and Needful Things. And 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 on top of all of it, I'm going to be the one who brings Castle Rock back because it's supposed to be gone in 1999. So, I, again, I never would have done that. And I didn't find out until I sent Steve the first draft about five weeks later. And he wrote back and he said, this is great. Um, you know, if you want me to do it, edit on it, I will. But it's your story and it's great and it's done and you don't need me. So wow, I tried nice. to convince him to. Yeah, I tried to convince. I was terrified then because that's the thing. I wasn't terrified when I was writing it because I just thought, well, you know, we're playing in the sandbox together. Steve's just running late and he's going to come in and, you know, keep building the sandcastle with me. Um so, it, again, it was one of those kind of lightning strikes where you look back at it and you're like, if it didn't happen exactly the way that it happened, um, it just wasn't going to happen as a whole. Because, I, I again, I, I wouldn't have had the guts to, to sit down and do all that, knowing that it was just me. I, I, it would have felt presumptuous. It would have felt wrong. And But Steve was insistent. You know, I tried to talk him into to doing his own pass and adding and cutting and doing everything we did, you know, in the first in the first book. But uh, he's like, no, nah, man, the story's here. And, you know, he's typical Steve, you know, humor. He's like, the good news is you get to keep all the money. I was like, Steve, that wasn't <laughs> my intention. <laughs> oh, so. But, yeah, after after that, that week of just. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there was there was not much nervousness or anything with the writing of the, of the second one, unlike the first one. But once I once I learned that it was going to be me all by myself, there was a lot of it. And I uh, I spent about a week, you know, semi terror stricken where I was just like, he's going to change his mind. He's going to come in. But he didn't. So it worked out. And I have this beautiful 200 page manuscript all marked up in Steve's handwriting that I can put away somewhere and save for my children. Um, so that's all right. So the interesting thing about I love I love that whole thing. And, it, and the thing that surprised me was that um it that the collaboration sounded like it was less stressful than the solo work uh because typically like and i'm not a writer but i would think that once you're on your own and you're doing your own thing um that's that's easier because you don't have to deal with like maybe differing opinions on things so uh, that that caught me by surprise but it does kind of lead into one of the questions which was um the difference between collaborating with someone in a writing situation or just doing your own work so um any any thoughts on that like uh your preferences or or, or outside of, of what you just told us well you know it's interesting because i you know i spent 20 years doing you know dozens and dozens of stories and i think i collaborated on two or three so my collaboration rate was pretty low um and they were all enjoyable experiences i mean i had a great time with them and learned and um if, you know, then, you know, the last few years I've collaborated with Stephen King and uh, and my son, Billy. Um, so they, those were both wonderful experiences. So, yeah, I mean, any preference, if I could collaborate with Steve and or Billy every time, then sign me up for the collaborations for sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's just interesting. I mean, because with the first button box. You know, people people will ask me, you really rewrote Stephen King. And I'm like, you know what? I'm believe it or not, I did believe it or not. There were sentences where I'm like, yeah, I like this, but I'm going to tweak this. And and he certainly did that to me. And we certainly you know, I wrote the original ending for Gwendy's button box. And Steve kind of polite me politely said, this is a little dark, which which was his way of saying Gwendy deserves better. And, and in the end, he was absolutely right. Um so he rewrote the ending and then I kind of went in there and massaged it a, a very little bit. And, uh, but it was, it was just this painful, I mean, painless, wonderful process where, you know, I mean, Stephen King was my literary, you know, hero. He's, he's the reason I started cemetery dance way back in, in 88. 
Um, he's the reason I started writing this stuff because of reading his work earlier in high school. Um, so having the opportunity to sit down and, and write with him, um, and I and I told a lot of the press this, you know, I, I said I, I've always been a huge dreamer, a big dreamer, but I never dreamed that big. I never in a million years would have thought that would even be a possibility. Um, so I just, you know, once I got over the initial fear, which was there on day one. Um, of how am I going to do this? It, it, it was just a joy um, being able to see the choices that King made and his ability to make a good scene, a great scene. Uh, I talked about that coin show, um, you know, the coin dealer at the coin show in the Castle Rock, uh, you know, like Knights of Columbus building or whatever it was. And, you know, when he when he saves Gwendy in the parking lot from the thugs on their bicycles and he and he whips out his uh, uh, what was it? Was it a pocket knife or what did he have mm-hmm. a tattoo? I can't remember, but it had the United States Marine Corps insignia mm-hmm. on there or something. And that was Steve's little touch. And just to see his ability, he also changed the pervert and the in uh, the coin show. I had him wearing a, a Red Sox hat, and he changed it to an Orioles hat. <laughs> so just his, just his little, uh, his his little, uh, you know, just being able to see his little touches here and there, and see the choices that he was making, um, was fascinating. And it just, I felt like a big kid all, all, you know, the whole way. And the cool thing about it was, it, it was the story itself that got me over, you know, my nervousness. Uh, the first day. I sat down and I, I was writing some notes longhand in a, in a yellow notepad and my hand was shaking because it had really hit me, you know, okay, Rich, here you go. You're going to start, you know, you're going to pick up this story where Stephen King left off, you know, not Steve, your friend who you text about baseball and your dogs and, but where Stephen King, the number one, you know, blah, 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 you know, left off. And even now I take a deep breath when I say that, cause I'm like, holy shit. Um, but yeah, my hand was shaking, and I just remember going, "All right, Rich, this this isn't going to work. This is ridiculous." And I tossed the notepad, and I uh, just opened my laptop, and I started writing. And um, within you know half an hour or an hour, uh, every, all that you know, all the nervousness was gone, and I was in Castle Rock, and I was walking by you know at Gwendy's side, and um, yeah, like I said, a lot of words poured out of me in the next two or three days. And I remember it was time to send it to Steve. And I was like, oh, maybe I should edit it again. And I said, nope, just hit send, get rid of it. You're just going to have to plow through this. Um, and then, you know, that's how it was. Each time it kind of came back and forth and until we were finished. And, and Steve was very kind throughout and um, never said a word about anything that I tweaked. And, and you know, the cool thing was, is he, he you know, again, it's some bit of press at the end. He said, you know, we, we kind of rewrote each other and added and subtracted and, and continued and batted it back and forth until we kind of found a third voice in there that was just a combination of the two of us. And it's the cool thing is because there are a few things in there. That I'm like, I don't remember whether I wrote that or he did. And I want to go back and look at the manuscript, you know, the different files that we emailed to each other. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I kind of like it better this way. <laughs> You know, nice. not knowing for sure. But um, so, yeah, I mean, that kind of collaboration. Yeah, I'll take that every time. I mean, I learned so much and it felt, you know, I felt like a kid getting a tour through, uh, you know, the chocolate factory with Willy Wonka. It was pretty damn cool. Well, you know, I, I don't know that we need to say this out loud, but you did a great job with with, with thank you with Quindy's magic feather. And it fixed. For somebody, I, I grew up reading a lot of Stephen King, and, and in all honesty, since doing this podcast, I, I have fallen off because we read like 30 books a year. So squeezing something in just for my own interest is difficult. Right, I but know I, that feeling. I think I think it fit. I think it fit Castle Rock very, very well. And and one of the reasons I say that is, I'm trying to think of how this sounds to somebody who doesn't who's not familiar with the universe right and and mm-hmm. the only thing i can equate it to is like think about the things that star wars fans get pissed off about nowadays with the newer movies and the disney plus show if you're a stephen king fan that's how it is there's a rabid following and you've yes. got to dot all your i's and cross your t's and i'm thinking rob who's not a hugely uh, you know who isn't terribly well versed in the stephen king universe is probably thinking like these two guys sound like you know like like clowns <laughs> talking about this but there's right. something to be said for making sure you deliver that um 100 so i think you did a great job with that well thank you yeah that was once once i knew steve liked it and uh and once it passed bev's test as far as accuracy i i kind of 
breathed a sigh of relief. And then that went away as we got closer to publication. Cause again, you're right. I mean, his, his group, his readers, his constant readers, his loyal readers, they'll nail you, man. They, they know every mistake you make when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the dairy and castle rock and his different towns and, and all that. So, uh, it's, I haven't, you know, no one has pointed out any, uh, geographical mistakes yet, but I'm sure they're coming, but, you know, but again, I, I appreciate it because it was a worry. I, I just, I mean, right after the fact, once I realized it was just going to be my name on the cover and, and, you know, once I made sure Steve realized that, you know, dude, if you go back and look at your emails, I actually even said, you know, I, you know, you're probably still going to be busy by the time I get you the manuscript that you can take your time with as much as time as you need to do your pass. And I'm like, this is what I thought. <laughs> it's like, well, you don't need me rich. And, but, uh, even then, um, you know, I remember telling him just, uh, you know, just make sure that because of where it is, because it's, because I sure as hell wasn't going to, you know, the book opens in DC, but I had no interest in, 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 getting into, you know, the political stuff in depth or, or, you know, I didn't think any of his readers kind of wanted to follow me there. And, and to be honest, I didn't, I didn't know that story to tell. So I, you know, I took him back to Castle Rock pretty quickly. And, and I just, that was my main concern. It's just that Steve knew that, uh, there was a reason for that. And then also, you know, about a week later, I, I told him, I said, you know, my only fear now is that, you know, your readership will feel like, uh, you know, I tried to sneak this Castle Rock, you know, novel end under their noses. And I think that's why he was so agreeable to write the introduction to the book, because he kind of wanted to let people know that, hey, Rich did this with my blessing and, and, and I really like it. And I think you should, too. So that was another gift from him to me, for sure. Moving away from Gwendy a, a little bit. So 21 years now, Cemetery Dance. Um, 31 31. It is 31. There's yeah. no oh, math Lewis. for you. Jesus. <laughs> math. Come on. Either, one is, either one's a long ass I'm time. Gonna, yeah, but man, I don't want to shortchange you 10 years. <laughs> 31 years. Uh, um, Rob was just in diapers, I think, when, when Cemetery Dance started. Um, so we may have some <laughs> listeners that aren't terribly familiar because we cover a wide, wide swath of fiction. So what would you say is important uh, for people to know about Cemetery Dance, both the magazine and the, the press at large? Um, I, what would be important for them to know, besides the fact that we're a dinosaur now at 31 years, which is kind of the where, you know, where I always start because I'm still kind of in awe of that. But um, I guess just, you know, we, we, we were one of these little tiny upstart companies that started – you know, we, the first issue of the magazine was published in 88. And uh, the way it came about was I was selling my own short stories to different, you know, back in the late 80s and the early 90s, it was like the heyday of small press publishing. And there were literally dozens upon dozens of small magazines, um, you know, horror, science fiction, fantasy, suspense. And, and it was almost like this minor league or train or training ground for, uh, for writers. Um, because, you know, you kind of earned your chops in the small press and then you moved up to the bigger magazines like the twilight zone and, and, uh, night cry and Omni and, and Fangoria. Um, and I was selling, you know, a lot of short stories to some of the smaller magazines. And, and what would happen is I would get my contributor copies in the mail I would be all excited. I'd open the envelope and about at least half of those times I would pull out the contributor copies and they'd be really poor quality. Um, so I was, you know, I was in my last year as a journalism student at the university of Maryland. And uh, I say it often, I was young and dumb and full of energy. So I decided I was going to start my own little horror magazine and, um, decided on the name cemetery dance because that was the name of a short story of mine that had sold, and uh, I remember just getting many more comments about the title, about people liking the title than the story itself. So it kind of stuck in my head and I wanted a unique name. So I, I went with Cemetery Dance. And, um, yeah, I published the first issue when I was in college, the second issue right after I uh, finished college. And uh, I just never went out and got a job. I never even put together a resume. I just accepted the fact that I was going to be poor for about 10 years. And, um and uh, just kept working on this little magazine and it kept growing. And eventually we went to, you know, a larger page count and color covers and uh, got some newsstand distribution and got in the comic shops. And, and then, uh, 
started publishing, you know, more popular authors like Stephen King and Ray Bradbury and Dean Koontz and Joe Lansdale and, and just a whole slew of others. And I, I think, you know, I guess what I would want people to know about that is just, uh, you know, people say, well, how in the hell did you, you know, were you able to get these guys to work with you? And it wasn't because of you know, any financial reward because we paid very little in the first uh, five or six years, particularly. But I think they saw a young guy with a lot of energy and, uh, you know, they saw someone who was doing it for the right reasons, which was just this this overflowing passion for the genre. You know, I loved it. I wanted to learn more about it. Um, you know, I was working these at 70 and 80 hour weeks to just, uh, you know, try to make the magazine the, the, the best it could be. And um, like I said, I made no money for a long time and there were tons of mistakes and frustrations, but I, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. And uh, the magazine led to publishing books and the books led to publishing some comics and and uh, just all kind of snowballed. And finally, after, you know, I think the books publishing started in year three or four and after probably after year eight or nine, we, we actually started uh, doing well, you know, in a financial sense and we're able to expand and bring in employees and and all that. So I, I just think the, you know, I've actually gone back and asked some of these people after the fact, what the hell were you doing working with me? And they said that's pretty much what they said is they said, well, we, we could tell you were doing it for the right reasons and you were doing it out of love. And, um, I guess that's the thing I'm most proud of. Cause it, I, you know, I definitely wasn't doing it to try to earn a living in the beginning. Um, I'm glad that you said that about the, <clears throat> the name of the press. I, I was talking to a, a coworker who's a reader and, and a writer in her own right. And <clears throat> I said, Oh, I said, I'm really excited. We've got this guy and he's, he's the, you know, the, the creator, the founder owner of cemetery dance. And she right. looked at me and said, what a cool name. Like that was the first <laughs> thing that came out of her mouth was like this revelation about this great name. <clears throat> oh, it, I used to be, trust me, in the beginning when I opened the bank account, every time I went to the bank, it would be a different person. And they would, excuse me, do you mind if and I'd finish the sentence for it? Yeah, Cemetery Dance is this. <laughs> you know, well, what's, what's the story about? And, uh, you know, I still have somewhere, the original name was going to be Night Chills. And I still have in a folder, in a file somewhere in my garage office, probably um, a cover mock up with night chills on there. And uh, I, you know, I just remember thinking it was too generic and hearing from people in the beginning that it was too generic. So I sat down and looked for another title. And that's that's where it came from, is I just remembered everyone, you know, I, I wish they had said, you know, the story itself was memorable, but that wasn't the case. It was the title. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to steal that. And uh yeah, I got a lot of questions from post from, you know, my postman and bank workers. And I remember getting some flyers printed at Kinko's um, in the middle of the night at, at College Park, uh, you know, a college <laughs> town. And the guy, you know, the guy was probably stoned and he's behind the counter squinting at me. He's like, are you are you throwing a, like a rave in the graveyard? And I'm like, no, this is just this dorky little horror magazine of mine. <laughs> Nothing that exciting. But uh, yeah, the, the name kind of. <laughs> kind of sticks with you, which I'm glad. So um, you said that uh, you had this uh, huge love for the genre, and that's kind of where this all started. Was there? A, have you had a moment at some point where you kind of looked and said, "Oh wait, I'm living the dream," because you know of of the people that you've worked with and everything? Did you ever have like a "Holy crap, I can't believe this is my life" kind of moment? Uh, all the time, it, all the time. I mean, especially as it was, you know, as it was happening. I mean, I, I've, you know, and, and people to always tell me, you need to write a book about your experiences in publishing sometime, you know, that way you can air the dirty laundry and you can tell all the inside stories and you can talk about how people thought you were smart for doing this when in reality it was you making another dumbass mistake that just turned out okay. <laughs> and all these different things. And they're probably right, but I, I'll, I'll probably never sit down and do that. But yeah, there's so many moments like that where I just, you know, it's a pinch myself, whether it's, you know, you know, the, the phone ringing and, and my wife saying it's Ray Bradbury, you know, or Jesus. or, <laughs> you know, me getting a postcard in the mail um, in 91 from a guy named Chuck saying, I sent you a story from my client, Stephen King, uh, a couple months ago. And I'm wondering if you've read it yet or if perhaps it's sitting somewhere in a pile and me reading that, my hand starting to shake and going, wait a minute, 
and running. You know, we lived in a little two bedroom apartment at the time and running back to the apartment, to the apartment office. And I had taken the closet door off to use it as a storage area. And there on the bottom was a stack of submissions, probably about three feet high. So I just kind of fan out the submissions on the carpet floor. And, and sure enough, there's a, um, uh, you know, an eight and a half by 11 manila envelope from this guy, Chuck Varell, who I didn't know the name. Now I know Chuck really well. But at the time, who the, I didn't know who Chuck Burrell was. I didn't know he was Stephen King's editor and his agent. So inside was the original manuscript of Chattery Teeth, which he wanted me to publish in Cemetery Dance. Um, so, yeah, wow. that's always the fun story where I say the first time I had published Stephen King, I made him sit in my slush pile for two months. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how embarrassing. So I was just yeah, thinking the same I, thing. Yeah, not a lot of people can say Stephen King sat in the slush pile. Yeah. And the cool thing about it is they didn't even say like, all right, dumbass, if you're dumb enough to let this happen, we're not letting you publish it. And he just sent me this very polite postcard. I immediately read the story sitting there on the floor and, and immediately I called the guy back. He had the number was on his postcard, told him I loved it and blah, I couldn't wait to publish it. And sorry, I explained what happened. He laughed. I laughed. And then my wife and I went to a baseball game. We came back. I hit the blinking light on the answer machine and there's a message from Stephen King saying how glad he is that I like the story and how he can't wait to see it in the pages of Cemetery Dance. So I, I've got dozens of those moments where you kind of can't help but feel like, is this real life? And, um, you know, uh, they're all really personal because and that's the thing is it's it's not because. You know, he's Stephen King, the mega bestseller. It's because he's Stephen King, whose story, The Monkey, I read when I was in 11th grade in high school. And that made me decide I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And it's Stephen King who wrote it, who, you know, I read that book when I was in college. And that kind of reminded me, hey, it's time to get to work if you really want to do this. And and it was right after I read that book that I started writing more and kind of never looked back. So thinking about those stories and then having the opportunity to, to, to hang out with Steve and catch a ball game and, and him blurb something, you know, without you asking him, write you an email and say, Hey, I just read this and it's wonderful. And, you know, if you want to put this on the cover, you can, and then having, you know, the opportunity to write with them and then, and you know, there's just a, a ton of that. So to answer your question, it still happens. Um, good. I yeah. still, you know, the forward to the magic feather, I probably read 10 times and, hmm. you know, each time thought, you know, holy shit. And, you know, and writing with my son, same thing, you know, having the ability to or having the opportunity to to do that, um, you know, with with someone who sat on your lap and you read scary stories to him and he read his own scary stories to you. And you watched all the movies together and you watched paranormal activity one night and decided it was too scary and you had to turn it off and finish it in the daylight. And, you know, just all these little kind of stories in the nooks and crannies that that lead up to being able to do that and then finding yourself on a movie set with him. And he's 20 and he's watched these characters that he made up come to life and, and you're watching him and his expressions and just yeah so i'm very blessed and and could could fill up a, a whole hour with kind of those cool stories um that i don't know if i deserve but i'm really happy that that you know have been included in my life for sure so i just want to say that everything you just said in answer to that question kind of is proof that mm -hmm. you are doing these things for the right reason <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you know what? It's funny. And, and again, it's, I don't mean this to be the Stephen King show, but uh, when, I think maybe one of the first times I went down to Florida and, and caught a, a Red Sox Orioles spring training game because he lives down in Florida during the, uh, the cold months. And um, he doesn't live far from, uh, from where the Orioles uh, play their spring trainings games, the Baltimore Orioles. And um, I think it was the first time I went down. So I was still pretty damn young had never, you know, this was before he was really, you know, had read any of my writing or any of that stuff, but, you know, he knew what he knew, you know, we had published his books and lots of his stories by then. And, but I just remember one day and I was talking to him about how I was thinking about expanding into a paperback line. And here were my, you know, here were my reasons to be excited about that. But then here were also my, my reason to be hesitant. And I must've, I must have uh, expressed, 
you know, some doubt in myself or, or, you know, which, which is unlike me. Cause like I said, I, I was young and dumb back in college and, and I'm no longer young, but I'm pretty dumb now. I'm, I'm like one of those guys who's kind of like unafraid to, to try anything. Cause you know, I've fallen down so many times. It's, it's not a big deal to, to fail and make mistakes and just keep going. Um, but I must've expressed some doubts or something. Cause I remember we were eating after the game I'm looking down at my plate of fish and chips and all, and all of a sudden I hear in this very, very, you know, what you know as the Stephen King, you know, main accent voice. And he just says, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And I remember I just looked up and I was like, what? He goes, you're doing with your life exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And I just, you know, I often don't have those thoughts in the moment of, okay, this is one of those things I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. But I did that. I was just like, I wanted to like, can I borrow your pen, Steve, so I can write that on a napkin? Um, <laughs> but it ends up I didn't need to, because of course I, I remembered it. But uh, yeah, yeah, it, that was one of those moments where, you know, I'm pretty sure as soon as I got back to my uh, room, I was like, called my wife and I was like, Steve says I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> and probably sounded 12. Oh. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, uh, just with what you said is, yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm very, uh, very blessed. And, um, you know, I have two sons and I, and I tell them all the time because they see a lot of the, the fun stuff. They see a lot of the cool successes and stuff. And, and my wife and I'd very much like to share with them the stories from the first decade where, you know, you put all your, your available funds into this direct mailing, you know, because back then there was no Internet. So, so much stuff was done with direct mail and mailing lists and you're trying to market your business and grow it. And you put everything you've got into this and and it, it you know, lays a big fat egg and you're thinking, OK, well, how the hell am I going to pay the printing of the next issue? Much less, how am I going to pay rent? Hold on. And, you, you know, um, and you're just kind of flying by the seat of your pants and um you know, I like to tell them about all the mistakes we've made and, and, you know, just how much sweeter it feels to, to find some success on the other end. But, uh, yeah, it's just kind of neat to see through their eyes because as my wife says, they just see the guy who gets to work around the house in sweatpants and a sweatshirt, and <laughs> not get up, not get up early and fight traffic and go to work. So I think it's important that they realize that, yeah, their dad is still largely a knucklehead who, who screws up a lot, but keeps going and, and, and keeps fighting. From a book publishing standpoint, a special edition publishing standpoint, it's like you mentioned Ray Bradbury, like getting a call from Ray Bradbury, which is absolutely ridiculous, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah. But like I was telling Rob before the podcast, like the one thing I, I, I'm sad that I missed out on is in layman's terms, the mm -hmm. Richard Layman tri tribute and thought like there's some kind of legendary stuff that, that you've had, you know, pass through your hands. Is there, is there one or two that are like that are stand out for you? you know, kind of in the way that, you know, we were talking about like things that are super memorable that you're really proud of from a, from a publishing standpoint. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, what would be interesting is I'd love to some point at some point go down and, and like, almost like give little thumbnail, you know, backstories about each book, but you know, there's, there's like 400 something books now, I think. So it'd probably be pretty boring, but I think that'd be the way to find the good stories in there. But yeah, the, the special ones, there's a bunch. I mean, uh, the very first book we ever published prisoners and other stories by Ed Gorman, um, you know, and Ed's not, you know, real well known, but he was such a great writer and he was such a, you know, if, if Stephen King was kind of my literary idol, then Ed Gorman, came in right there, you know, next to him. And I learned so much from him and he was so generous with us. Um, so to be able to publish his, uh, a short story collection, his first one was a huge deal for us. Um, and then as we went on, you know, I published an original uh, Ray Bradbury collection of, of short stories and poetry and fragments called, I think it was the chapbook of burnt out priest rabbis and something or other, which was a bizarre title, but I, I still, I remember just thinking, okay, without CD, you know, it's not really because somebody else would have published the damn thing, but I prefer to think, okay, without CD, there would be this no Ray Bradbury book, which was pretty amazing. Um, and there's, there's quite a few of them like that. You know, the first time I was able to publish Joe Lansdale or Rick McCammon, um, you know, publishing the 25th anniversary edition of it, um, from King is probably at the top of that list just because that, as I mentioned earlier, it was such an influential novel for me. Um, 
you know, I go back, I, I used to do these talks in libraries a lot. And, um, it was after, I think the second or third one I did, I, it, I walked out of there and I kind of had a chill down my spine. Cause I realized as I was talking about the kind of the chronological stepping stones that I went through that led me to doing this. And I, and I kind of realized how fragile it, you know, constructed it all was because I realized if, if I had just missed one or two of those stepping stones, I don't know if I'd be doing this and reading it at the time that I read it was such a big one. Reading the monkey in 11th grade was another one. And then, you know, I could go on like that and there were three or four more. And I just think, my God, if I would have skipped, you know, maybe two of those early ones, I, I, I you know, I might be, I don't know what I'd be doing. Cause you know, you ask my family and, and those closest to me and they say the thing, same thing. They're like, well, Rich, we don't know what the hell you'd be doing. You're not mechanically inclined. You suck at following directions, you know? So I don't know what I'd be doing, but, uh, but yeah, I, uh, again, another reason to, to feel blessed for sure. So in that vein, um, thinking about contemporary writers, people that are in the scene now, either still or, or newer to the scene, anybody that you're, you're happy you've come in contact with recently or that you, you'd like to do some work with? Um, there's a bunch of them. Um, you know, I just read a book. Well, I'm reading one right now by this uh, C.J. Tudor, I think her name is. I think her real name is Kaz. And sh she's terrific. Um, I just finished a book. Um, well, I just finished Lansdale's last one, and I've worked with Joe a lot and haven't worked with him in a while. I'd love to do that again. Uh, you mentioned Lehman. I wish he was still around to work with because he was just, he, you know, every book I did with Dick Lehman was like working with that crazy favorite uncle of yours who, who just saw the world through <laughs> kind of a different lens than everyone else. And, and could write the most outlandish stuff and, and make it entertaining and, and, and actually thought provoking. And, and, um, you know, I, I just remember people always used to say about Lehman, you know, he was writing stories that only Dick Lehman could, and they were right. So anyway, I haven't found a new Dick Lehman, but, uh, I'm publishing a new book by this guy named Max Booth who, uh, uh and I, and I read this book in a, in a flurry, just, you know, in, in a single day. And I remember thinking this, this he's writing like, uh, like Dick did where he's kind of, he's not looking over his shoulder. He's just doing his thing. And, and he kind of doesn't care what you think about it. And it was such a fun ride. Um, so the, yeah, there's a lot of them. I mean, and there's a lot of, you know, Sarah Pinborough who's writing kind of mainstream thrillers now, you know, she's someone I'd love to work with. Um, you know, who else? There's a couple people actually who I won't mention their names because we're actually doing deals with them right now. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's always, that's the cool thing is there's always the, the new breed that's coming up that, uh, you know, you feel fortunate to be able to work with. Yeah. I saw Max Booth mentioning something recently and I'm, I'm assuming that's what you're talking about, but yeah, that dude's yeah. been on radar for a while. He's a, he's a cool dude. Yeah. Yeah. He's a funny guy. I like, I'd never really known him, um, at all. And, uh, kind of just had a couple exchanges online and then he asked me if I would read something. And it was one of those instances where it's like, you know what, this sounds kind of cool. So I'm going to read it, but you can't tell anyone I just agreed to read it because <laughs> if you do, I'm going to get 50 other people asking me to, and you just happen to catch me at the right moment. And it doesn't matter if you, even if you explain that to the other 49 people, they don't want to hear it. They just want you to read the damn thing. And I understand that, but, um, but it's just, you know, that was like, the whole reasoning why eventually we had I had to get away from from having Cemetery Dance being completely open, um, you know, 12 months out of the year is because we were started getting five, six, seven hundred submissions a month. And it's like, you know, you're getting dinged for having a slow response time, but you're also not making a single penny by reading all these manuscripts. And you've got to make some pennies in order to keep going, you know, so it was a trade off. Here's something that occasionally you run into this thing where you feel like you should explain something to someone. Yeah. Like I have, I don't know Max Booth personally. Like we have, we have some, we have the same friends, but I, I don't know him, but let me explain to you that you agreeing to read something by Max Booth is probably a lot like how you felt when Stephen King said, Hey, do you want to, you want to write this with me? And I don't know, I don't know. If you know that. No, he's a pretty cocky young guy, man. He's he probably fits that definition of me being young and dumb. Although, you know what? I was young and dumb, but I always knew that I was kind of uh, what do they say? Uh, um, you know, I don't know what the, the phrase is. That's 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 young and hip now. But for me, it was just I, I always knew I was in over my head. I, you know, 
I, I was playing, I was running, I was a senior in college. I was running down the basketball courts, playing, running full court basketball with all the drug dealers from DC. Um, Cause I, you know, some of them lived in the complex in the apartment complex that I lived in. And then I would run back to, I would see what time it was. I would run back to my apartment. I would have a conversation with like Joe Lansdale and RC Matheson because it was scheduled. And then I'd run back and play basketball some more. And then when I was walking back to my apartment later is when I would realize I just talked to Joe Lansdale and RC Matheson. And I have no freaking clue what I'm doing. <laughs> so I always knew, but I have a feeling Max is, he's young and cocky and uh, I'm not so sure that I impress him that much. <laughs> but thank you for saying that. I get people who from time to time you can tell are, are a little like, you know, you know, you're the Richard Chismar and I just laugh and I'm like, yeah, that the schmuck is me. <laughs> Trust me. You know, <laughs> you don't need to, you don't need to be that impressed guy. Um, but yeah, I, like I said, I have feel Max isn't one of them, which is, which is cool. All right. Well, Richard, before we let you go, is there anything you want to plug other than Gwendy cemetery dance, anything specific you've got going on you want to talk about? No, you know what? Actually, uh, my life has been has been centered around Gwendy's Magic Feather for for the last few months, and uh, the paperback's coming out. The paperback and the ebook is coming out in uh, on January twenty first from uh, Simon and Schuster Gallery Books. So that, and other than that, just you know, maybe give me a follow over on Twitter or uh, Instagram, and you know, I do a lot of giveaways and kind of uh, you know. I really enjoy interacting with with the readers and uh, and just hearing about their stories as, as well as letting them know you know which stories of mine are coming. Awesome. Well, I'm going to thank you for two things. First, I'm going to thank you for um, mentioning uh, us amongst other people on Twitter when you were starting to talk about Magic Feather because that's what caught my attention. And anytime I don't know uh, the way that this works for for us is anytime someone gives us any attention at all. I'm like, let's work with them. So uh, that's definitely <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely why we read the books, and that's why we uh, approached you to talk to us now. So thanks for at mentioning us on Twitter. That was very cool. Um, and My thanks pleasure. thanks for spending the time with us tonight. It was a wonderful conversation. So really appreciate it. Well, thank you again for for having me on, and I enjoyed it. And uh, let's do it again sometime. I know I say this after almost every interview, but fuck, man, we are lucky to get great fucking engaging guests. What a terrific interview that was. <laughs> yeah, a little peek behind the curtain. Um, within the first, it was like not even halfway through him answering the first question. I was sending a little message to Livia saying, like, I know this is going to be a great, <laughs> great interview. Yep. So, like, you can and just kind of feel it. it. Uh, and, yeah, it was a great time. He is uh, such an interesting dude. And. Um, I'm glad we had the opportunity. His level of enthusiasm for what he does uh, after doing it for so long is, is you know, I don't want to say surprising, but 30 plus years. And he sounds just as enthusiastic as I'm sure he did when he was in his early 20s getting this thing going. So it's so cool to to talk to someone that has that kind of passion and energy, especially after that long of a period of time. Did you get the feeling? So, like, I was thinking about this and I didn't I, I kind of. I stopped thinking I lost track of it, but like uh, because we spent a lot of time talking about the books that he just released here, but then we, we, you know, we're talking about the fact that he's been, he's had cemetery dance going for over 30 years now. I kind of got the feeling that we, we, we like just saw the very tip of a fucking incredible iceberg. And like, we probably mm -hmm. could do a series of conversations and never even come close to running out of content to talk about. Um, I agree. And I, I think I think in the future we'll have Richard on again. Um, I do want to say one thing. It's always uh, so we're talking about, you know, Stephen King. And then, you know, when you know the person, right, who calls him Steve <laughs> or <laughs> you know what I mean? When, when they refers to a first name, that's not the one that we're familiar with. So we talked about Richard Lehman. And he calls him Dick. And you know that that's something for, for fans. Um, like, you know how, how I feel about Lehman. Like, it's so dear even to talk to somebody that can refer to Richard Lehman as Dick. Right. If that makes sense to you. You know what I mean? Like, so that was that was very cool to, to hear some of that stuff. And uh, we'll see. I get the feeling, like I said, we'll be talking to Richard again. Next week, we have no idea what we're doing. Rob and I should probably get to talking about that because we were so excited about this interview. We forgot to plan ahead. Yeah, who who needs who needs to know what's coming up next? I'm happy with. Yeah, yeah. that's true. 
Well, around the so, corner, the here. thing that we do know about, on the 21st of December, we're putting on the Santa hats again, and we're getting on Facebook Live. At least I am. The <laughs> Yeah, the holiday office party. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, I'll be there, too, and I'm sure Misty and Jesse... <laughs> We'll be there where I, I think, and I mean, I don't know if I'm able to at this point to convince the other three that we're not going to talk about Home Alone, but it looks like we're going to be talking about the movie Home Alone. <laughs> I, have, right. I, I don't, trying to think if I was less enthused at anything else we've ever done for a holiday episode. Oh, no. And I don't, I can't, I can't, I don't, I don't know. So I, I'm prepared to be the contrarian in the group. Which is not a surprise on this on this thing, but yeah, there will be gifts. There'll be exchange. Rob, I'm so excited. I, I'm nervously excited for for the gift exchange. Okay. In that, I I, I haven't seen a final product yet. Uh-oh. So tomorrow, PS is dropping off the gifts that I have for you guys, and if it worked out well, then I'm super super excited. But there's that potential that it didn't work out super well, and then I'm not so excited anymore. But either way, it's that time of year. We're going to do a gift exchange. We're going to watch a shitty Christmas movie. We're probably going to drink a little too much. And the episode will go on for at least an hour and a half longer than it needs to. But you'll be able to do it with us on Facebook Live if you are so inclined. Boom. There it is. Well, that's going to wrap it up for episode 470. It's kind of a milestone. It's a weird one. But, uh, right? It's good. Episode four seventy. We'll, we'll take all the milestones. Milestones. <laughs> milestones. We'll take all the milestones we can get. All right. Uh, <laughs> join us next week for something. Until then, I'm Rob Olson, and I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading.